Hey, good morning again. Uh, before we get into the message this morning, just two quick announcements. Just a reminder, if you're joining us late on this live stream, really important this week that you go to the website as much as possible to keep abreast of what's happening. If there are some cancellations because of the weather or if things are being changed or tweaked a little bit, go to the website or to the, uh, the, uh, the smartphone app and you will be able to find some information to stay current with what's happening. Also, uh, today we were going to begin a new series. We were going to talk about the body of Christ, and the series title was All for One. We were going to be talking about the one and other passages that you find throughout the Bible, but primarily those that you find in the Christian scriptures, the, the New Testament. But because of the cancellation of our in-person service and worship today, we're going to begin that next week. This morning, what I would like to do is... Uh, in, in the middle of all of the things that we're having to face this weekend and in the week to come and what we've been through this last year, I want to talk just a little bit about God and the blessing of God in our life. And I want to begin by, by going back to Jesus' time in Israel. One day in Israel, a large crowd gathers to listen to a carpenter who is turned into an itinerant rabbi. Thirty years earlier in the south... There had been quite a ruckus in the land over the birth of a baby who would also be a king. There were stories of angels and of shepherds, a miraculous moving star, magi from the east, horrific murder of young boys, and all these Old Testament prophets and their words coming to fulfillment. And then nothing. For a long time, then nothing. And then the stories began surfacing again. There were healings where there was no hope of healing, where there was paralysis of the body, of limbs, healing, where there was, was pain and torture in the body, there was healing, where there were seizures, there was healing, and where demons had enslaved human beings, there was freedom, and here is this, this rabbi who is teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. And the crowds were beginning to seek out this carpenter. The word was spreading which villages he was at and where he was traveling. And they would go from village to village to follow him. And then one day there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to the west of Capernaum, Jesus sees the crowds that have been seeking him, and he goes up on the side of one of those hills. He sits down, which is the position or the, the posture of a rabbi, and he begins to teach them these words. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness and for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus begins the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus began his ministry by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, he told people to repent, that is, to change their lives. He also said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God without being born again, that is, without receiving a new life which is brought to you by God. And this brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to give you this, it's not a definition of Sermon on the Mount per se, but it is something important to know as we read these words. The Sermon on the Mount is an articulate and succinct explanation on what life in the kingdom of God is like. The Sermon on the Mount is an articulate and succinct explanation of what life in the kingdom of God is like. And notice how Jesus has begun the sermon. He begins it with the word blessed and blessed and blessed. Christ begins with the Beatitudes, that is, the nine blessed are you statements to define the kingdom of God. And his point is this. The kingdom of God is a blessing-rich life that is available to all. The kingdom of God life is a blessing-rich life available to all. The, the Beatitudes have been difficult uh, for years, a, a difficult read for a lot of generations. I think the biggest mistake to think is that the blessedness comes because of human achievement. In other words, you know, it, it makes, in a sense, the Beatitudes a little bit legalistic. I get blessed because I choose to be poor. Issue number one with that is, doesn't that sort of sidestep the need for Jesus to live a blessed life? And then issue number two, there is nothing inherently righteous about being poor. Poor people can be as greedy and poor people can be as materialistic as rich people. To understand the blessedness, let's think a little bit about the context. The crowds of people that are listening to him are the crowds who have heard the invitation in every village, in every synagogue, in every burg in, in Israel to enter God's kingdom and to experience God's rule in their life. And they are the same crowds who have experienced the miraculous healings. Jesus, as he's teaching, could point to a man and say, here is a blessed man who has been healed because of the kingdom of God. He could point to a child who had suffered from seizures but has now been made whole because the kingdom of God had come near that child. Jesus could point to a woman in the crowd who was out of her mind or had been out of her mind. A demon much more powerful than her had captured her and say, here is a blessed woman because the kingdom of God has restored her. And all of these people who are there listening to the Christ, are looking for some kind of hope in their distress. And the kingdom of God comes near, and their lives are changed. Their lives did not become automatically trouble-free and void of pain, but now there was evidence of a power that blesses. There's an evidence of a power that blesses that had come into their presence, that had come into their midst and forced them to reevaluate re God, their world, and their place in it. 
And what Jesus is trying to, to say and to teach and to, to exhibit and demonstrate and manifest is that the kingdom of God is a blessing-rich life available to everyone. It's available to the poor in spirit. Those whose life has nothing to offer by human standards. It's available to those who mourn. Those who grieve because something is missing or because something has been taken away. The kingdom of God, the blessing rich kingdom of God life comes to the meek. Those who choose not to exercise their power and therefore, and therefore make themselves vulnerable in order for something good to be done in the life of another human being. The kingdom of God and all of its blessing comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the ones who feel like they dwell in a desert void of justice and righteousness and fairness and equity. But it also comes to the merciful, to those who have chosen to be kind or to be compassionate or to be gentle or to be forgiving, especially forgiving in a dog-eat-dog world. It comes to the pure in heart, those who choose to not participate in evil or in the ways of evil. It comes to the peacemakers, those who strive a difficult harmony in a fallen world full of ready-made villains and enemies where sometimes fighting evil with evil rather than with good makes better sense. And Jesus is even saying to those that are going to be persecuted for righteousness sake that there is a blessedness that comes to your life when there is a willing to pay the price for striving after God and striving after God's precepts and honoring God in a world that is continually, daily rejecting God. And the reason that this blessing-rich kingdom of God life is possible is because, first and foremost, God is the loving and joyful blesser of creation and creatures. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of God being depicted as a grouch, as an awful parent, a capricious tyrant, or a cop on the prowl. I mean, let me ask you a, a, a question about the invisible God and his invisible heart. How do you, even if you do not know somebody personally, how do you assess and understand an invisible heart? How do you assess and understand an invisible heart? You can do that by what it loves and finds joy in. Think about God and how he rejoices in his creation. Psalm 104 verse 31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. And he said that it was good. As a couple of years ago, Ellen and I take a cooking class at Sur La Tave. We created the, the food according to recipe. We tasted the food. And then we said, that's good. And we had created something that we will never tire of eating because it's good. Now, that's a little thing. That's, a, that's really a microscopic experience of what God felt when he spoke creation into being. God loves to watch the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1.3 million times bigger than the earth. He loves to watch 
the sun hang in the cosmos and burn. God joyfully watches the creatures of the ocean the way that we love to watch our aquariums and never get tired of it. God loves to watch a daisy unfold, an acorn sprout. He adores to watch a river run. God loves to watch the fall turn into winter and the winter into spring and and then into summer and then into fall. God loves the stars in the sky. And Isaiah reminds us that God names every single one of them. Not only does God rejoice in his creation, but God rejoices in his son, Jesus. Do you remember what happened at his baptism? He goes to the Jordan, he is baptized. As he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And there is this voice, the voice of God, the voice of the Father, that says, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, This is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. God also rejoices in his people. Jeremiah chapter 32. You know, Jeremiah is one of those prophets that did not have a lot of really tremendously positive, uplifting kinds of things to say. But he does say this, chapter 32. God speaking says, I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their good. And for the good of their children after them, I will make an everlasting covenant, that is this new covenant in Christ. I will make a new covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good. And will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart. And with all my soul. All of heaven rejoices when a human being comes to trust him, to trust God with their life. In the, 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 the story of the prodigal son, and the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, Luke chapter 15. Jesus is telling these crowds, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, I, I fear that at times we read our Bibles like we go to the art museum and we see only the signs that say, do not touch the paintings or please keep quiet in the exhibition halls. And in so doing, we miss the paintings and the beauty and the awe and the inspiration that surrounds us on the walls. For Jesus, the world belongs to a joyful and loving God, the most joyful being in existence. And out of joy and love, God cherishes human beings who are made in his image. And God wants to bless them, although for good reason, many times for reasons beyond the understanding of our finite minds, the world is other than he wants. But here's the thing. The life of Jesus is the proof of the blessing-rich life of the kingdom of God coming into anyone's life. Who is Jesus describing in the Beatitudes? Who is Jesus describing 
in the Beatitudes. He's describing his own life. And Jesus' life is the life that validates the power and the reality of the Beatitudes. His life was the most blessed, joy-filled, love-driven, God-trusting life, although he was the epitome of poor in the spirit. There was no majesty, no beauty or appearance that attracted us to him. He was despised. He was held in low esteem. His hometown t-shirt read, nothing good comes from here. By human standards, he had absolutely nothing to offer. He was poor in spirit. And Jesus also knew what it meant to mourn. He was a man, Isaiah tells us, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, more than anyone else, knew that all of creation and every human being were not what they were supposed to be. He mourned the loss of Eden. He mourned the presence of death. And he was meek. He knew in the hearts of his enemies was a desire to kill him. And yet when they struck him on the right cheek, he turned and offered to them the left cheek. We sing a song. Very true. He could have called 10,000 angels to save him from the cross. But the angels never came. He made himself vulnerable in order for the kingdom of God to come to every human being. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. You know, at the beginning of his ministry in his 30th year, he literally went to the desert and he fasted. And when the tempter came and said to him, Jesus' response to the tempter was this, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was merciful beyond our ability to even understand the greatness of that mercy. His life was not diminished because he sought to be pure in heart. There was a joy in seeing the face of God that trumped every other temptation in life. Peacemaking was in his DNA to bring God and man together, although man had made himself God's enemy. And yet he was blessed. He knew what it was like to be persecuted for righteousness. King Herod the Great tried to murder him at his birth. Pontius Pilate sentenced him to death on the cross, although Pilate knew that he was innocent. And yet Jesus was blessed. And in all this, he lived in the richness of God's presence. Living an abundant life that he would share with anyone who wanted it. And the great thing is that after 2,000 years, he's still inviting people to enter the kingdom of God. If you have ever felt like a nobody and wondered if anyone would ever look at you, let alone love you, Jesus sees you and he says, I have room for you in my kingdom. 
And if you have ever been heartbroken, Jesus says, I have a place for you where your wounds will be healed and it's beside me in my kingdom. And if you've never, if if it just seems like in your life, day after day, you never get a break, nothing goes your way, it's setback after setback after setback, Jesus says, I have a place for you in the kingdom of God. And if you've ever been so hungry for a meaningful life and have become disillusioned and let down, Jesus invites you to the blessing-rich life of his kingdom. And if you've thirsted for a day when evil has ended, God says, today I can put you on a mountain. I can put you in a place where you can see justice roll like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And if you feel guilty, in your soul you feel guilty, Jesus says, my kingdom is founded on grace and mercy and there is forgiveness for your soul. The kingdom of God is available to everyone. And Jesus says, Come, let's sing.